podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This is the Ridiculous Ashes podcast. I'm Dan Lipke. With me is Alex Bowden. Hello. And what we're doing here, we're covering historical Ashes series, and, and the goal is to find out which nation is the more ridiculous at cricket. Is it England or is it Australia? So how do we work out who is the most ridiculous nation? Uh, each episode, we're going to look at one test match, and we're going to nominate a series of ridiculous moments to see who delivered the most ridiculousness in that given test match. Uh, so the most ridiculous moment will earn three points, the second most ridiculous two points, and the bottom step of the podium will get a point. And most points will win the test match. Uh, as for our definition of ridiculous, you know it when you see it. <laughs> uh, it doesn't necessarily mean ridiculously bad, which is a mistake some people think. Uh, the classic example is uh, Ben Stokes at Headingley. That would be ridiculously good, but it's still ridiculous. And uh, ridiculous moments don't need to be ridiculously good either. They can be ridiculously bad, ridiculously good. R- ridiculousness is a broad church. Yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll take anything. <laughs> uh, so what, uh, what series are we starting with, Dan? Uh, we're we're going to start with the 1997 Ashes. I think the logic behind that is that you, being, being a pr- proud Englishman, wanted to deploy the, the legendary ridiculousness of the England uh, 90s cricket side. And, and I, I was suspecting that perhaps the 1997 Ashes tour was when Australia were at their, at their most ridiculous in that era. We, we suspect that England currently hold the ridiculous Ashes, but we'll uh, find that out whenever we go back to do the, what, what is it, the 94, 95 ridiculous Ashes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you feel that in actually 90s England, just an absolute powerhouse of absurdity that that's i mean that's the thing here we we tend to think of australia being dominant in the 90s england being just on the receiving end but in the world of ridiculous ashes the 90s england side is just i mean probably one of the all-time greatest sides you would think but as you say 1997 we think is probably going to be interesting to look at because australia had their own sort of strengths at that point uh, their captain mark taylor had forgotten how to bat completely forgotten how to bat and yet he was not only playing but captaining. Uh, Michael Bevan was a bowling all-rounder and then just before the Test Series began they'd they'd lost the one-day series 3-0 which is no mean feat against (laughs) 90s England. Uh, But could they carry on that form into the uh, the series itself or across the series? Because this is, I mean, this is 90s England strength over a five-test series. Or six-test in fact. Six-test in fact, yeah, you're right. (laughs) Ridiculous in itself, it's too many tests. (laughs) So let's Let's, uh, let's first have a recap of how the actual match itself panned out in uh, in traditional terms. Yeah, in, in, in traditional terms, Australia won the toss and decided to bat, so you can't get much more traditional than that. Uh, they immediately <laughs> collapsed, however, to uh, 8 for 54. Now, you're going to want to say 54 for 8. I'm going to say 8 for 54. Uh, that's you know, that's just the way we roll down here. <laughs> uh, but a Shane Warne counter-attack saw, saw them reach a marginally less embarrassing 118 all out. Uh, in reply, England uh, plummeted to 2 for 16 and then they were 3 for 50 and then a little bit later on they were 4 for 338 that's because uh, NASA Hussain and Graham Thought uh, put on a 288 run partnership which meant that England could eventually declare at 9 for 478 a first innings lead of 360 uh, in the second innings Mark Taylor made a career saving 129 and Australia briefly threatened to wipe off the deficit uh, just one wicket down 
But on the fourth day, England rallied to bowl Australia out for 477 and then reached the 118-run target for victory for the loss of just one wicket. So it was a nine-wicket win to England in the first test in the traditional sense. Uh, But who was the more ridiculous? It's time to find out. Hell of a recap. (laughs) Thank you very (laughs) much. All right, so I think I'm going to start here with... uh, Yeah, you make the first nomination. And and I I have to start with uh, the the, the man, the myth, the legend, uh, Captain Mark (laughs) Tubby-Taylor. Uh, who, as, as you mentioned, he was named as captain despite not actually being able to bat. Uh, I did, did a little bit of stats research on this one. In the, in the 12 months prior to this Ashes series, he'd played nine tests, uh, 16 innings, 297 runs at an average of 18.56, uh, with a highest score of 43. So pretty much by any definition, a dreadful run of form. So no, no 50s in memory. And, but here's the rub. His captaincy was deemed so critical to Australia's success that in that previous year, all kinds of band-aids were applied to the Australian team uh, in order to cover for this lack of runs. So by the end of the previous Australian summer, as, as you'd mentioned, Michael Bevan had been added to the batting lineup as number seven and a second spinner, just to bolster the batting a bit. Uh, and then on the South Africa tour that followed, they decided that wasn't quite enough. So they also added an extra opener in there uh, to cover for Tubby's inevitable early wicket. So Hayden opened with Tubby on that South African tour with Elliot batting at number three. And it was all very divisive at the time and all wonderfully ridiculous, particularly in hindsight. Hindsight corner. And we will come to hindsight, but particularly in hindsight, given that the main reason for the retention of Taylor was the deep concern people felt over the perils associated with letting a test side be captained by Steve Waugh. <laughs> that, that was considered the riskiest imaginable thing. <laughs> by the way, as I mentioned, that, that that's uh, that's only ridiculous in hindsight. So that's hindsight not technically corner. counted as, as part of these ashes. We, we do have a special hindsight corner segment you may have actually heard it underneath that piece of audio there and and that that just made something that is ridiculous but only in in retrospect and they they won't be included in our points mechanism yeah there's plenty what we're trying to do here is we're trying to revisit the series as if it were playing out live and see what was ridiculous at the time we can look back on all sorts of things and think well there was there was no chance of that having happened with the benefit of hindsight yes Uh, that's very much the the thrust of that that corner hindsight corner hindsight corner And, and then of course as ridiculous as this whole thing was, Taylor captaining Australia, uh, despite you know not being able to bat, it got even more ridiculous because the second innings came around. He was the la- he made his century, and therefore it was all completely forgotten. <laughs> Life went on. So <laughs> very very ridiculous moment. That's my that's my number number one nomination. That's a strong nomination. Can, at this point, can I, on a, a tangentially related point, uh, yes. tell you about Carter Carter USM, the nineties indie band? Yes, of course. <laughs> I, I, I'd be embarrassed if you didn't. No, it, it's, it seems a massive oversight to not mention it at this point. Uh, Carter used to have this guy called John Beast, who I think was the tour manager. And uh, before each of their gigs, John Beast was a, was a fat man. Uh, he used to come out on stage and uh, the crowd, all of the crowd used to chant, you fat bastard, you fat bastard <laughs> at him. And then he would shout a few stuff. Oh, and he was naked. Sorry, I forgot to mention he was basically naked as well. Yep. And uh, they would just abuse each other. But the whole crowd would chant, you fat bastard at him for quite some time until the band came on. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it strikes me that uh, the nickname... <laughs> Tubby is a very tame nickname. When you think of the Australian cricket team and the kind of nicknames that you imagine being bandied around, Tubby seems very much from like a children's comic. Uh, is there 
Is there something I've missed here? It doesn't well, seem to fit. Ha- have you read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? I have. Yeah, well, there, there's a story in there about the Golga Frinchum space arcs, uh, particularly space arc B, who the rest of the population tricked into leaving. And the person in charge of that space arc, the captain, was an affable kind of leader who spent all of his time in a bathtub. So I, I put forward the theory that Mark Taylor was called Tubby in honour of that Douglas Adams character. What, as a, as a heavy bather? Yes. <laughs> or, no, <laughs> just, just, just someone who spent a lot of time in a tub. Yeah. Oh, I saw. <laughs> Shall I move on and make my first nomination? Yeah, give it a crack. My first nomination is very simply NASA Hussein's double hundred. <laughs> so, thirteen wickets. The state of the match: thirteen wickets fell for 168 runs. And then at that point, it's kind of the partnership, really. NASA Hussein and Graham Thorpe put on a 288-run partnership, and this. It's hard to sort of put yourself in the position of being an England fan in 1997. <laughs> but the point is, England just, they didn't do double hundreds at all. <laughs> the, the previous Ashes double hundred, I checked this, was David Gowers in 1985. Oh, God, that's a long time before. That's quite a long time ago. But the only man who'd made a double hundred against anyone between that and Hussein's was Graham Gooch, who'd made two, one of which was the, the triple hundred. Triple hundred, yep. And uh, the Hussein's weirdly sort of passed me by. I don't, I don't know if I just missed that day of the match or something but my main memory of it is in years to come whenever Nassim was batting and uh, they'd put up career high score and it would be 200 and odd I'd uh, I think to myself well no this this didn't happen this just it just didn't seem real and then to find out it happened against Australia as well was uh, just absolutely ludicrous I just assumed they just got it wrong and I just refused to believe it was he trying to teach somebody a lesson it always felt you know very very similar to uh, modern day Johnny Bairstow it always felt that NASA's batting flowed best when he was fueled by a sense of well I'll bloody well show you yeah uh, not that I'm aware of but maybe the world maybe you need to show the world yeah. <laughs> what was going on um, he said that when he walked off it was the it was the first time he'd ever walked off and couldn't really have a go at himself which kind of implies <laughs> that every time he made less than 200 he had a go at himself and I don't know if you know this about saying, but he never made another double hundred so Presumably, every yep. single innings he ever played for his whole career, immediately afterwards, he had a go at himself, which seems <laughs> entirely believable. And my other favourite detail of this, which I only discovered uh, while reading around uh, last week, was that uh, and I've got a dim memory of this, but uh, I think I've expunged it from my, from my mind. Uh, he and uh, Graham Thorpe were apparently once part of the bat pack of aggressive young England players, Winston said. Two things about The this. bat pack? The bat pack. So two things. <laughs> Firstly, that's just terrible that's i can see why that didn't really live on that's awful and secondly uh, you don't get packs of bats you get colonies everyone knows this <laughs> very good the bat pack well i mean that, that that's that earns ridiculous points straight away surely <laughs> uh so so m- moving on to my next nomination then i'm, I'm gonna go go with greg blewett who who did the very opposite of cashing in uh and again we'll, we'll set the scene as mentioned australia collapsed to eight for 54 uh, and the most absurd performer in that collapse was was, was definitely Greg Blewett because he was bowled by Darren Goff and, and then it was discovered that he was bowled off a no ball. Uh, so obviously that's a massive let off for Greg Blewett and he immediately failed to cash in. I, I, I presume he did the opposite of cashing in. He cashed out, presumably. <laughs> uh, he, he was caught in the slips the, the very next ball. So great work from Greg Blewett. He out 
We're pretty by a no ball. Out the next ball anyway. Bugger it. I'm going to be part of this collapse. That is, that is committed work. That's <laughs> it's very committed. Uh, for, uh, basically, from 8 for 54, Australia did rally, as we mentioned, to 118. Warren, Shane Warren was the man who behind that rally. He made 47 off 46 balls. And I guess that's one of the great things about batting collapses, isn't it? Because if it, even if a tail rallies, it's still ridiculous because it kind of implies that maybe the actual batter should have been able to you know, score some runs or something. Yeah, it's a win-win. Halfway through a, a huge batting collapse is a win-win. If, yes. In terms of ridiculousness, if you completely fold, that's ridiculous. And if you, if yeah, if a tail ender suddenly knocks about, hits forty, it, it puts the earlier failures in context. Yes. So yeah, you can't really go wrong. You lose five or six wickets for nothing, and you you just <laughs> you're in the home straight. <laughs> yeah. So so great work from Australia there, and particularly great work from Greg Blewett. Yeah. I mean, the other thing about that is I I'm pretty sure uh, I can't really work it out from Scott. But I'm pretty sure that Goff had bowled Mark War. Then they'd been an over. Yes. And then the very next ball, he bowled <laughs> Greg Blewett. And then it was obviously the no ball. And then it had him caught in the slips. So uh, Blewett was essentially two thirds of a hat trick on his own. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that, that's that's fantastic effort. Uh, so disappointing for Darren Goff. I, I guess he got a, a, a hat trick later in his career. So uh, probably yeah. retrospectively less disappointed by that. Uh, well, he, he very much dines out on it. I think. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Darren Goff talking about his hat trick. I think that's true of anybody who's taken a hat trick, though, isn't it? Oh yeah, I think uh, except for Wazim Akram, yeah. who's taken so many, he, he forgets <laughs> some of them. He, he can't remember how many hat tricks took. He needs reminding. He's like yep. a little uh, little nudge. And my next nomination is Greg Blue as well, uh, <laughs> for slightly different reasons. Because in the second innings, Greg Blue made a hundred, uh, and what this meant was that he'd hit a hundred in each of his first three Ashes Tests. And at the time, this was just crushing and felt typical as an England fan. It just felt like every new Australia player who came along was just an absolute world beater. <laughs> now, I don't suppose you know, do you know how many Test 100s Greg Blewett made? I, I'm not sure he made many more than those, those three in the Ashes. He made four. <laughs> he made four in his entire career. There you go. That, that, that's definitely not many more. So he made three in his first three Ashes innings, and then he made a, a NASA Hussainian double hundred against South Africa a little, well, that, that's right, but I, that 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 was when he batted all day with Steve Waugh. That was that was actually earlier that same year. Yeah, in 1997. So I mean, there's an element of hindsight corner to this hindsight in the sense corner. that he didn't go on to be the sort of will beater that he seemed at the time. But at the same time, this is a guy who'd just effectively been out twice in one innings, and even he was hitting <laughs> hundreds. He was hitting relentlessly, hitting hundreds against England. It uh, it does it does feel careless to let anybody get three hundreds in their first three Ashes tests. Careless. <laughs> <laughs> England were a very careless side. I'll move on to my third and final nomination. That's uh, the Jason Gillespie run out. Uh, what, what, we, what we did fail to cover earlier on was that uh, perhaps one of the reasons that uh, Nasser Hussain and Graham thought uh, had a chance to put on a massive partnership was that Jason Gillespie broke down as he tended to do. Uh, he broke down after just 10 overs when Australia were bowling in the first innings. So that, 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 that in itself is not particularly ridiculous. But it did mean that when uh, Australia batted in the second innings, uh, Gillespie came out to bat with a runner, which is perhaps the height of ridiculousness. It's a absolute tragedy that there are no more runners in the game. Yeah. Uh, and what made it what made it even better was that the runner was Michael Bevan, who is a man just far more suited to running than Jason Gillespie ever was. <laughs> what 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 kids these days may not remember about runners is that they had to wear exactly the same kit as the batter. So if they had a thigh pad on, you had to have a thigh pit like just like they were twins of unimaginative parents or something. <laughs> 
In in retrospect, that didn't that didn't really go far enough, did it? I mean, someone as speedy between the wickets as Bevan should never be allowed to run for a man whose batting was most famous at the time for taking a big stride forward, planting a front foot, and playing a defensive stroke. That was all Gillespie was known for before his double century. And that, instead, he got uh, Michael Bevan out there to run for him. the 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 third layer of ridiculousness on this is that, of course, uh, Gillespie's innings ended as every single innings with a runner did with a run out. So uh, Michael Bevan just <laughs> stuffed it up and. And they were they were both run out. That's that's always the thing, isn't it? That there's, there was always the sense that you would you put out the uh, the fastest runner in the team, put out some Usain Bolt character to uh, to get some quick singles, like it was some kind of advantage. And then invariably, within 10, 15 minutes, it would be proven to be not in the least bit advantage. It just adds to the confusion. Yes. Um, I think people always think that cricket. People often say, sorry, that cricket's at its best when it's the best players against the best players. It's just absolutely completely wrong it's it's best when it's shoddy and amateurish and masquerading as elite sport all the same and i, I think the runner the concept of the runner is one of the, the great elements of cricket. Yeah, the, the, the runner was great because there, there was uh, there was always that the runner was always at square leg, and so so you had instead of just the the, the yeah, just no, not even within shot, just <laughs> yeah. So instead of the simple straight line, you always had to be glancing over somewhere else. It was magnificent. It's just in a different postcode, right? So shall so I move on to my next nomination? I've got a lot of fondness for this one. My next uh, my next nomination is Mark Elam blasting out the tail blasting out Australia's tail. So in Australia's first things, England used three bowlers because they'd bowled them out so cheaply. And these were three pretty good bowlers. I mean, you look back on some England sides and uh, there's, there's some oddities uh, who get picked. But this was uh, Darren Goff, uh, Andy Caddick and Devon Malcolm, which seems like the makings of a great attack. That's, that's a very good attack. Yeah. And the second thing is we got to see he was supplementing them. And that was uh, Mark Elam and Robert Croft, who were a lot more <laughs> 90s. <laughs> and uh, Elam just blew away Australia's tail in the second innings. He took three for naught in 10 balls. <laughs> I love this because whenever people talk about it, sort of blowing away the tail, it's always a fast bowler or a wrist spinner. And Mark Elam is just the least blessed out the tail bowler you can possibly imagine. I mean, what, what, what exactly did he bowl? Just pure military leader. <laughs> I was watching the footage and I'd forgotten how he ran in. He uh, he was a real sort of splay-footed <laughs> duck waddle. Well, it, it struck me as being like Gareth Evans from primary school, but that's not a reference that many people are going to appreciate. But uh, real sort of foot-out little waddle in. And, and uh, it's a run-up that said, I also bat a bit. <laughs> <laughs> you're not getting picked just for your bowling if you're Mark Elam. Um, so that's my third nomination. Yeah. I, I guess what you I, didn't even remember. I d- didn't, but 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 what 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 I do admire most about uh, the ridiculousness here, I, I admire the versatility of England's ridiculousness because a more expected path for an England '90s team would be to somehow allow Australia to come back from a 360-run deficit to win, and and Australia did reach one for 327 in reply, which was a, a mere a mere 30 odd runs behind. <laughs> and at that point, it did feel like England would heroically cock the whole thing up, but. Uh, Somehow they, they, they said, no, we're going to come at this from a different angle this time. We're going to send Elam in to blast out the tail and uh, we'll, we'll find a different way to be ridiculous, but also win the match. So that, that was a, a, a great uh, innovation, I could think, for England cricket. That was, that was wholly unexpected. It, they, they operated on a different plane. It was yep. uh, ever since. Okay, so that's three nominations each. Uh, is there anything else you want to mention that didn't quite make the cut? Yeah, I, I, th- I think 
one unnominated moment I've got here is that during day three, Mark Wall was taken to hospital. He had a little bit of a pain in his tummy. Uh, presumably, this was just how he reacted to England uh, on the in the process <laughs> of winning a live Ashes test. I, I think that's the only time. Something is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> his body knew that something was awry and assumed. It was, uh... it was, it was also a, a nice tribute to uh, Craig McDermott, who on the previous Ashes tour went home with a twisted bowel. So maybe he was just oh, thought, oh, maybe, yeah. maybe I can get out of this if I pull uh, Craig McDermott here. A twisted bowel. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, we'll come to that in due course. Uh, well, I've got a couple of entries for Hindsight Corner. Yep. Hindsight um, Corner. First of all, in... Uh, in England's second innings, the, the the run chase. The run chase ended up a bit of a madcap helter-skelter affair. <laughs> I, that, that, they were trying to win it on the fourth day, weren't they? Yeah, there was yeah. no real reason for it. They, just, they got a bit carried away. <laughs> they were a bit delirious, the idea of winning a live Ashes test. And in particular, Mike Ellerton smashing uh, Glenn McGrath around. Uh, he ended up with 57 off uh, 65 balls and said, uh, the adrenaline was flowing so much that I couldn't stop myself playing attacking shots. That was Mike Ellerton's, to be clear. <laughs> to, to, to Glenn McGrath as well. So uh, yeah, uh, I mean, I, I think at this stage, I, I, we, I did look this up because we weren't sure um, how far along this was in their, their, their history together that they'd only just begun to compete against one another. McGrath had still taken his wicket three times out of five attempts, but still. Yeah, but it was it was a burgeoning uh, well, not rival, rivalry is not really the word, is it? It was a burgeoning... Uh, Bullying. Yeah. Um, and the second thing uh, is just a thing, uh, I think I found it in Wisdom, I can't remember. Um, apparently this was the, the only Ashes series between 1987 and 2005 in which England won a match before Australia had already taken an unassailable lead in the series. So not just, <laughs> not just won a match before Australia, but before Australia had already taken an unassailable lead. That's uh, that's quite something. Oh, that's magnificent. Right, should we get to the votes then? Let, let's get to the votes. I, I, I'm going to argue very strongly that Australia sending out a captain who could not bat. Uh, that, that's that's the height of ridiculousness. And, and yeah, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I can state clearly enough how terrible he had been in that prior year and how ridiculous it was that he was still in the team let alone captaining the bloody thing <laughs> i think the i think what sort of carries this is firstly it's ridiculous that he was playing and it was ridiculous <laughs> that he was captain but then to sort of compound this it's ridiculous that it worked out okay i think that's <laughs> yeah. the thing that's sort of decisive for me i think that's why it is a very very strong case and um yeah I mean, it's okay. Sorry, we should mention that we're going to be judging this as well, but we're going to be impartial for judging, aren't we? I mean, you're feeling quite impartial now, aren't you? I, I know I am. Definitely. Um, I have a real soft spot for the for Mark Elam blasting out the tail, but um, if I think about how I felt at the time, I feel like Nasser Hussain's doubled. That's the only one I feel can rival Mark Taylor because I don't know I don't know if you can feel the same way about this, but even now I having seen subsequent double hundreds from England, this the fact that NASA saying hit one against Australia, it was just a thing that never happened, let alone in Ashes Test, and, and didn't happen again for quite some time. I think that's probably my strongest entry. Yeah. I, I yeah, I, I I think that's pretty good. I, I do enjoy the Elam one, but I, I, I do understand how um how just out of the blue the fact that uh, there's an England batter scoring 200 runs against Australia and just setting up a 360 <laughs> run first innings lead it was just madness uh, so okay well I I, I, I I still think Tubby's got that beat so uh, I'm gonna push hard for the three points for Tubby there um, but but I, I will I will give you two points for Nasser saying because I do think that's probably the 
second best uh, best of the of the moments. And and then I'll then I'll push hard for for Greg Blewett uh, with his nice little cameo of being two thirds of a hat trick that never got to be because one of them was a no ball. Uh, yeah, I, I mean it was a nice. I think it kind of summed up the the collapse. I think it's it draws some of its strength from that from being sort of a, a key part of that. I mean, particular also. I mean, sort of the the flip side of me saying that Blewett hit a hundred in, in the second innings and it was three hundreds in his first three Ashes tests. The flip side is. This is the guy who's hit 200s in his first two Ashes tests and then gets out <laughs> yes. respectively twice in two balls. So uh, it, it gets a pair in his in his first <laughs> first innings. Yeah, that, that is pretty good. I uh, I don't think my uh, my Blewett nomination matches that. Uh, I think it, I think it probably edges out Elam as well. But uh, but it's it's not as good as I can't let it get past Hussain's double hundred. Not that it makes any difference. No, no. I I, I think I think Australia will get the, the, the three for Tubby, the one for Blewett, and. And Hussain will get two points for England, which I think uh, means Australia take a 1-0 lead in the 1997 Ridiculous Ashes. Well, your maths is superior to mine. I'll uh, <laughs> I'll accept that addition. Yep. And, and, well, and, and I think, you can, can you hear the Australian fans at the ground? They're, they're, they're singing, they're coming home, they're coming home. The Ridiculous Ashes are coming home. <laughs> are they not chanting, you fat bastard, Mark Taylor? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, this, is, this proves our point that uh, the first test was in traditional terms won by England but the ridiculous Ashes first test was won by Australia that's I think that's probably quite common that that will happen but it's by no means guaranteed that Definitely the losing not. side will be the winning side it's uh, ridiculous just, just just does not work that way no it doesn't the two concepts are orthogonal uh, they 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 not necessarily related to one another. maybe they're not quite orthogonal they're they're at an acute angle they're, they're highly correlated but uh, not not identical that should be our tagline yes <laughs> ridiculous not quite orthogonal <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think we should probably get out of here. Uh, thank you for listening to the first episode of The Ridiculous Ashes, the, the first test of the 1997 Ridiculous Ashes. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. Where, where do we find you on Twitter, Alex? Uh, I'm The King's Tweets, which is a name that I hate. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, I, I, I hate mine less, uh, but it still means I have to spell it all the time. It's at Lieb Cricket. That's L-I-E-B-C-R-I-C-K-E-T. Uh, you can uh, support us in other ways. You can listen to this. You can support this podcast by giving honest five-star ratings on the podcast store of your choice. But you can also support us by means not necessarily directly related to the podcast. Uh, I believe you have a Patreon, Alex? Yeah. Well, if you go to, to King Cricket, my, my cricket website, you'll find stuff there. Yeah. And uh, you can you can support me by buying my books. Please buy my books. Buy Dan's books. We'll, we, <laughs> we'll be back in a week with our coverage of the second test of the 1997 Ridiculous Ashes. Can the underdogs Australia continue to shock uh, England or, or will, will the mighty England nonsense side bounce back? Sports Social Podcast Network.